Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here with Georgie McClanahan, who spent a big part of her career working in oil and gas and thinking through some of those big challenges of decarbonisation. Welcome to the show, Georgie. Thank you very much for having me. Georgie, if you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? I think my hope in 20 years is that this climate anxiety that feels so pervasive makes way for a real sense of excitement for the future, that we've put power back in the hands of consumers and that business interests align with society's interests more broadly. To be more specific about what that looks like for myself, I hope that I'll be living in a house that is solar powered, perhaps backed up with battery and hydrogen, and that when I park my car, I no longer pay for parking because I'm paid for the energy that discharges from my battery on wheels, and that hydrogen powered robots are doing all the heavy lifting so that we can have more leisure time to enjoy the beautiful environment that we have worked so hard to protect. Gosh, a really high tech, but sounds like quite a relaxing vision. So Georgie, where are you at the moment? I'm currently living in Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory. And what has taken you to Tennant Creek? What are you working on? I'm currently working in the education equity space. I'm a Teach for Australia associate teaching maths at the high school here. But before that, you were working in climate change, weren't you? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I was. I guess in some ways we're all working in climate change, uh, but for many of us it's somewhat in the subtext. I had experience working as a commercial analyst uh, and an economist in a large oil and gas company, which happens to be one of Australia's largest Uh, carbon dioxide emitters and over the course of those six years I really got to see the volume turned up on climate change from an internal perspective and also the external pressure there were protests as well as activist investors creating climate resolutions And that was a really interesting experience. And I got to see how the businesses responded to that. And my final role was working on analyzing carbon abatement projects of various types, as well as alternative energies. So really interesting, working in oil and gas, working for one of the biggest emitters and spending time and energy thinking about the challenges of helping the company move away from that position. So how to decarbonize. How did you feel working in oil and gas? Did you feel that people respected the work that you were doing? Before I had worked in oil and gas, I had actually dressed up as an oil spill for my brother's nautical themed birthday party. So I guess I felt like a bit of an activist even before I went into oil and gas. I think there's a number of people inside organisations 
like the one that I was in that do feel conflicted and, you know, to some extent feel like they might be a bit of a sellout. They've got greener leanings, but they're working inside a big machine. But I actually see that as a really powerful place for people to work because it's in these big machines that you can have quite a large impact. And so I think it's those people that are working inside those organizations that are able to challenge the status quo and challenge their companies and come up with really creative solutions on how we can collectively do better. So you talk about feeling a little bit like a sellout, but did you ever have people accuse you of that? What were the ways in which people talked about you and your work to you? Absolutely. Even now I have people challenge the work that I used to do and it's still something that I feel uncomfortable sitting with is this idea that there are those that are working in industry and are at the coalface to some extent and those that are working outside of the industry and therefore their hands are clean. That narrative needs to change. So you got pressure at the time and it sounds like you still get sometimes a bit of a hard time from friends or other people who are not working in the industry. Did you also feel at times inside your company that you were getting pressure? I mean, companies like that are a big place. There's lots of different people, lots of different points of view. What was the feeling you got for doing that kind of work around decarbonisation? Was that understood to be a priority? Were there tensions around doing that work? Yeah, I think it's understood that, you know, businesses' greatest responsibility is, is for their shareholders. And that naturally creates a tension between those in decision-making positions who have that responsibility and those that are working at the lower levels of the organisation. Those tensions coming together is a really interesting place to work. But I think it can also be quite frustrating because... You see things within an organisation that you wish could occur, but you know that current business interests and current political systems don't allow for those decisions to be made. So you see some great ideas, some brilliant climate solutions that just aren't getting traction because of the system that they currently exist within. And I think that's the ultimate frustration for people that are working in these organisations that are trying to make change. You talked at the outset with your vision for Australia as being a place where the business and societal interests were more aligned. And I can relate to some of what you're talking about because I've worked in corporates and I've worked in nonprofits and I've worked in government. And the way our company systems are set up at the moment is, as you say, it's all about shareholder value. And so unless you have systems that the change so that the costs or downstream impacts of your company's activities are experienced as really direct costs, then it's not necessarily in the shareholders' interests for you to change the way you're working. Is that what you were getting at when you're thinking about having a system which more closely aligns society's interests and companies' interests? Yeah, absolutely. You've summarised that really well. As you said, you've experienced it yourself. We do have a lot of division and vilification sometimes in Australia around some of these issues. 
I have some technical questions for you because, Georgie, when you and I were having a little chat before, I thought you were able to help me understand some basic fundamental things about what's happening in Australia at the moment. So in your role, you learnt a lot about what the current government is doing on climate change and in particular this idea of carbon credits or carbon trading. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that system, of what a carbon credit is? Yeah, absolutely. A carbon credit is essentially another type of financial product. It is a tradable certificate that represents the right to emit one tonne of carbon dioxide. So sequestering through environmental planting or other types of abatement projects, by sequestering carbon, you generate these carbon credits. And these can be sold to emitters and then emitters retire them to discharge their obligations under government policies. So I just wanted to ask a question about what sequestering is for people who are not quite familiar with that term. So I might have a process that releases some carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and an agricultural project could be used to sequester credits. What, what does that involve? How does that work? Yeah, so there's lots of different methodologies that could give rise to a carbon credit through sequestering. So one is planting trees that has negative carbon dioxide emissions because it's pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Another way that is currently not recognised as a methodology in Australia, but that is being worked on, is essentially carbon capture and storage. So where you directly capture the carbon dioxide and then you pump it underground and you store it permanently. Another way is just avoided emissions. So emissions that would otherwise occur under business as usual. There's some sort of human intervention that then precludes those emissions from happening. The idea is that you have avoided one tonne of CO2. So it's negative CO2 emissions. So you were talking a little bit more about the broad system, and I'm sorry I interrupted you there. Yeah, no problem. Essentially, carbon credits work to be a mechanism for those hard to abate sectors. So something like aviation, it's going to be very difficult for that industry in the near term to become carbon neutral. So instead, whilst that industry continues to have high carbon dioxide emissions, carbon offsets or carbon credits can be purchased so that they can achieve carbon neutrality by partnering up with a carbon negative business, such as environmental planting. So when you fly and you tick that box that says, I want to offset my emissions, essentially what's going on there is the airline isn't doing anything different in their operations. What they're doing is they're procuring carbon credits on your behalf. And most of those carbon credits are being purchased from overseas projects because they're so much cheaper than Australian projects. You talk about the companies procuring or buying those credits from overseas or, or other projects, are the companies buying them or are people buying them? Because I think when you fly, you as a consumer purchase those offsets, right? It, how does it work for flying in Australia? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question is who is essentially paying for 
Australia's emissions reduction. And for the question of flying, you, know, you the customer, are paying uh, an additional amount on your flight in order to make sure that that is offset. More broadly, we as taxpayers are paying for the majority of Australians' emissions reduction through the emissions reduction scheme and the government's purchase of carbon credits. This is probably where it gets confusing for a lot of us. We've had a few different systems in Australia. We had an emissions trading scheme and we had something that was called a carbon tax. And then we've got this scheme now. Can you walk us through how those are different from each other in terms of who's paying for what and what behaviour they're driving or motivating? There are two broad models. There is a carbon tax, which ultimately sets a price that polluters should pay for whatever their damage is. And in different countries, that dollar value per tonne of carbon is different. The other type of model is known as a cap and trade system, which instead of setting a price, sets an allowable volume of emissions and then ultimately lets the market forces determine the price. So trading is really important in that particular system. The trading of carbon credits gives rise to that market price. I think in Australia, it's been so confusing because we have moved between a number of different models. People will remember the carbon tax era, Julia Gillard's famous policy, I think from 2011, where we started with a tax of about $23 per tonne. So that was a carbon tax system. It put a price that polluters pay for how much they emit. And we were going to move towards a cap and trade system. And that policy, which obviously has been subsequently thrown out, was successful in reducing emissions, but it was rather unpopular. What we have now is a different system which sets a limit on the amount that large emitters can pollute, and that's known as the safeguard mechanism. So large polluters are allowed to emit up to their safeguard mechanism or their baseline under that mechanism. And then above that, they have to purchase carbon credits to discharge uh, their obligation. The thing is, though, that's not capturing very many emissions at all. That baseline is set so high that we're not seeing a lot of trading happening with emitters purchasing carbon credits, which is why, as I said before, the main purchaser of carbon credits in Australia is the government. My impression of one of the reasons that the carbon tax was so unpopular is we were all led to believe that it was a tax on us and I think for a lot of people too, even talking about it as a carbon tax is a bit confusing because it's a tax on greenhouse gas emissions. So it's carbon dioxide, but also some of the other greenhouse gases like methane and nitrous oxide, which are pollutants as well. And the intention was not that I would pay for it, but it was that the emitters would pay for it. And I guess anytime you have a company paying a tax, it can flow through to consumers. But I, I think one of the things that is intended by any of these systems is it's meant to motivate companies to, as you were saying, a little bit better line up their interests so that 
by having them pay for pollution rather than the rest of us through things that happen over time, like catastrophic weather events, having companies pay for that as it's happening, then they've got the incentive to reduce their costs and find less polluting ways of doing things. So it's interesting then to hear you say that what we've got at the moment is actually something where the thing that we didn't like about the carbon tax was that it felt like it was a tax on us in a way is exactly what we've got now, where we've got taxpayers and the government paying companies directly for these offsets. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, you've absolutely understood that correctly. And I think something that you touched on before about having companies internalise the costs that the public will bear at some point in the future through catastrophic weather events, it changes their decision-making and so it changes the outcomes. So you mentioned that carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas. And another one that comes to mind that's very pertinent for the oil and gas industry is methane, which is what natural gas is, which is the product that we sell. And methane in the near term has a amazing impact on warming. Over the first 20 years, it has an 80 times effect compared to CO2 and that diminishes over time. But methane is really going to set the pace for our near-term warming. And so we see methane escape through you know, the, the dairy industry, the meat industry, because that's what comes out of cows. But we also see methane leaks from the oil and gas industry. And if you're not taxing those methane leaks, then those companies don't have the same motivation to do maintenance to prevent those leaks from happening in the first place. And so you see these different incentives internally. And I think that's what frustrates some people on the inside of these organizations is they see real opportunities, low cost opportunities to reduce emissions. But unless we have a system that aligns those interests with business interests by putting a price on those emissions, then you're not going to see uh, those activities take place. So I feel like sometimes it's easier for people to get their heads around if you almost make an analogy to other kinds of pollution that are a bit more visible and direct when we're thinking about these sorts of systems and which systems do you use. So a similar example would be if there's a company that generates toxic chemicals from their processes and there's no cost for them to dump those chemicals into the water system. But if you put in a price and either you say it's against the law or you say we're going to um, fine you and the cleaner the water, the less the fines you pay and we're going to make you accountable for cleaning that up rather than make it the government's problem or the people who live down the river. As you said, people then have the motivation to change their behaviour because they can go to the, the shareholders and say, oh, look, we've got to do this. We've got to pay the money. And yes, it's going to take our profits down a bit, but that's something that we've got to do either because it's the law or because there's a cost to us to doing it. And so not only will they start to do it, but as you said, you, then you see people start to find more efficient ways because companies are really good at that. They're really good at finding more and more efficient ways to do things because it's all about keeping their costs low. 
we're going to find more and more efficient ways and cheaper ways to keep that water clean and to fix up those chemical processes. So I think sometimes it's easier to think about it like that because, and let's be honest, not everybody and not everybody listening to this podcast is convinced really that carbon dioxide is a pollutant because of course, you know, you can breathe it out. It's a natural substance, but it is because if if you get too much of it, then we have climate change. So that's also, I think, what's confusing for people because they think of it as a clean and natural substance, which might be a little bit di- different to, as you said, methane or, or some of those other things. So thank you. That's a really interesting way of, of, of thinking about it. One analogy that I like to draw upon when I think about this space as well is I think people have a good understanding of the GFC more broadly because there's been a lot of documentaries on it that I think during an analogy that we're at the pre-GFC but for the environment because we've got a system that privatizes the upside there's people in these dirty industries that make a lot of money you've got these oil tycoons that are the investment bankers of the new crisis and you've got the public wearing the downside. So we saw the public wear the downside in the GFC because of the, the banks being bailed out by taxpayer money. But that's even more pervasive, I think, here because we're all wearing the downside of catastrophic weather events, increase in insurance premiums that we already are starting to see. And so I like to think of it in that way, that the system that privatizes the upside but publicizes the downside and that we're headed for a greater crisis potentially than the GFC because we're tinkering with a system that wasn't designed by people. We're tinkering with a system that we don't understand because we didn't create it. As in the climate system. Yeah, we understand the financial system to some extent, but we created that system and that system imploded. But because we created it, we can fix it to some extent. Whereas when it comes to the climate, you know, we're tinkering with the system that we didn't create. And so if it implodes, we're not going to have the tools in our toolbox to really ameliorate that in the same way. Mm. I'm interested to understand, you've talked about the three systems that we have had in Australia. What's happening in the rest of the world? Yeah, so I guess it's a, a mixed bag and it can be best seen visually. So if anybody wants to have a look, I recommend the carbon pricing dashboard that the World Bank produces. And I had a quick look before we had this chat. At the moment, there are currently 64 initiatives covering 22% of global emissions. That is a combination of the cap and trades system or an emissions trading scheme and carbon taxes. And we see that some of our really big export partners in terms of energy are moving in this direction. So Japan, Korea, China have all got in place some form of carbon system, whether an emissions trading scheme or a carbon tax, not on everything, but on some industries. In the EU, we see a broad emissions trading scheme, which allows carbon credits to be transferred across borders. And the really great thing about that is, as you mentioned before, there's some great problem solving going on on how we can reduce emissions at the lowest cost. 
And where you allow these credits to be traded, you naturally let the market work towards how can we offset one ton of carbon for the cheapest price? And then you have a whole industry around achieving that. In Sweden and Switzerland, there I think is a tax that's more than a hundred US dollars. So they're the outliers in terms of a large cost on carbon. In Australia, our price is closer to about $10 for those credits. And most of the world is down that lower end. But you also see different sorts of policies that have a more direct investment approach. So governments will be involved in de-risking green energies through subsidies of hydrogen projects or through subsidies for electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles or through direct participation in projects themselves. And we saw, particularly with a lot of the COVID relief packages, some countries like Germany and France, for instance, spent a lot of their government investment in these sorts of green investment projects. So I think Germany and France had about 50% of their COVID relief budgets for green investment, which compared to Australia, ours has been about 2%. The way it's framed in Australia is probably more in that camp. We talk about the technology roadmap people might have heard about. Were you seeing that when you were working in oil and gas? Were you seeing big investments coming from the government to help companies make those shifts? I think what has been really challenging in Australia compared to some other countries is the lack of long-term vision. In Korea, for instance, there is a hydrogen plan and it maps out the government's commitment over a long time horizon to direct government finances to supporting that industry. I think it's not clear to businesses and the investment community more broadly in Australia, what the government's intention is in the long term. We do have the technology roadmap. Some states have got hydrogen plans as well, but it's not clear what that looks like. Some of these potential solutions are very expensive. And so without policies in place to either reduce the costs or to increase the costs of the alternatives by instituting a carbon tax, then you're not going to see the investment community get behind some of these alternative energy solutions, such as hydrogen and renewable power. I remember talking to somebody at one of Australia's biggest emitters 13 years ago, and he made a very similar comment, which was, we've got affordable offsets and abatement opportunities lined up. I think he was talking about $7 a ton, which is very different to the $23 price. But we need the government to act and we need certainty so that we can plan. Because when you talk about oil and gas companies, you're making decisions over really long-term timeframes. For a gas project, for instance, you're looking at a 40-year, potentially more life cycle and what I saw working within one of these organisations is that you're seeing projects be stalled as you wait for the kind of certainty that you're referring to because you would make different decisions for your development whether or not the carbon price is X or whether it's Y. And these projects are risky enough as they are. 
there's technology risk, there's uncertainty. The last thing you want is also geopolitical risk. And we see Australia internationally as being considered to have a high level of political risk that is making attracting international finance more expensive as well. One of the world's largest solar infrastructure projects is going to potentially happen in my backyard in the Northern Territory. It's going to be the largest solar infrastructure project in the world because Australia has such an amazing solar resource and we've got the space to do it in. But that electricity is going to be exported to Singapore where they have a greater degree of certainty around what their energy policy looks like. Often when I hear the phrase political risk, it's more about a military coup or civil war. You're talking about the political risk in terms of the changing of those policies in the way that we've already experienced. So there's been three pretty major shifts in the way the government is thinking about climate change. Is that what you mean with political risk? If you put your money in the bank, you want to know what the return on your deposit is going to be. And it's the same for the business community. If you're going to invest in a project, you want some degree of certainty about what the return on that project is going to be. If the project is going to have a higher risk, so a greater variation in what that return could potentially be, then you're going to want that to have a higher return. So when you put your money in the stock market as opposed to putting it in the bank, you know you're taking a greater level of risk. So to compensate you for that greater level of risk, you're expecting higher returns on average. And so what we see in Australia, not geopolitical, like we see in Africa, one of the project's pipelines might be blown up, but the political risk here is we don't know what the carbon price will be or what the roadmap for renewables or alternative energy investment looks like. Because of that political risk, you see investors demanding higher rates of return for projects that are in Australia, which is why we see investment in alternate energies and new technology going elsewhere, which is a real loss for Australia. You talk about the loss for Australia. I think when people are concerned about Australia moving too fast on climate change, they often talk about the loss to Australia, the cost of doing that. Do you see that moving on climate change is something that's going to tank the Australian economy? Absolutely not. There are some amazing entrepreneurs out there. There's some amazing technology uh, that is available. What would be amazing if we could support those in scale and then we could bring new jobs, new skills, particularly in the STEM areas, into the Australian economy. Because if we're not at the frontier of the energy revolution, then we're going to miss out on specialising in these particular areas because other countries are already investing heavily and it's other countries that determine what Australia essentially exports in terms of products 
and in terms of skills. And so I think if we're going to be a laggard in this area, then we're going to miss out. We can't convince the rest of the world to continue to take Australian coal just because we want to continue to produce it. And I think in particular, there's a real misunderstanding around how many jobs actually exist in our, in our existing industries. I don't have the stats, but the amount of jobs that are available for new projects is minuscule and not long dated at all, just for the startup. And then the, the amount of people that will employ in these industries is very small. And is that also true for the renewable space? That's a really great challenge. I think there are opportunities for new industries. So for instance, there are already businesses in Australia that exist just to produce carbon credits. And so that's a really exciting space. If we can grow that market, there's new opportunities there. And they are currently quite labor intensive. If we're talking about environmental planting, for instance, that's very labor intensive and allows for jobs in areas where there's currently not great industry. So it allows jobs in more remote locations. It provides jobs in less technical fields as well. For some of these industries such as carbon credits, there's also what we would call co-benefits. So instead of there being a negative externality that falls on outsiders, there's a positive externality that falls upon them. In environmental planting, for instance, we don't only get carbon credits, which is what the buyer is paying for. There's also an increase in biodiversity. We also have habitat restoration. We get jobs in places where there previously weren't jobs. And in particular, this can lead to great outcomes for native title holders and also Indigenous employment. That was one of the things that the Emissions Training Scheme did make possible was the reinstating of some of traditional land management practices because there's really good satellite imagery and scientific research that shows that doing that reduces overall fire load and therefore reduces the high heat fires that happen later on and the risk of fires and so you reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The Aboriginal communities are very tapped into the co-benefits because they can see the benefits of the land coming back to itself, but also that they had kids then who were working in jobs that were more traditionally connected with the way Aboriginal and Indigenous communities would define success. So not being an accountant in the city, but taking care of your land. So it also made me reflect on, because if you're in a community, especially the communities who've been hit by bushfires, hit by floods, they're in survival mode. It's one foot in front of the other at this stage. So it can all feel very abstract, even while you're experiencing something that may have been exacerbated by climate change, but it can all feel very abstract. Like that's a problem for wealthy people in the cities to worry about. So really interesting, that idea that you can have other good things that come off the back of those kinds of projects. I'm interested, given the experiences that you've had working in oil and gas and now working as a maths teacher in a remote community, what would your advice be for somebody like yourself who has maths and analytic or engineering skills and is thinking about what they might do? Would you be encouraging them to go into 
oil and gas industry and think about that as a career choice? I think the industry is really exciting at the moment in particular because it is in this state of flux. And there's a lot of hyper-intelligent people in these businesses. And I think if you can turn a large ship by just one degree, then that's going to have a huge impact. So I, I definitely would recommend working inside one of these large businesses, those that are seen as, as you said earlier, the bad guys, because the bad guys are ultimately made up of a lot of good guys that are just making the decisions that are right in front of them that are optimal for that business in the context that they're working in. And that context is set by the political and the business policies at the time. And so I think we do need more enterprising young people, mathematicians, creative types in these businesses to solve the problems that are going to hopefully enable my 2041 vision to be realised. Before we close out, I think it's really important to ask you, how on earth did you dress as an oil spill? (laughs) I wore a black dress and I had some soft toys like a turtle and a dolphin, I think, hanging off me that I had spray painted in black. And I think I had property of BP written across my chest because this was just after the Macondo disaster that led to the Deepwater Horizon movie. So it probably wasn't the most flattering thing to wear out. It was a good conversation starter, though. Well, there you go. Tip for anyone who's looking for a Halloween costume. If you could pick one big idea that you'd love to see Australia move on that would be catalytic in terms of helping us get to that vision of being still economically growing but also a greener place to live, what's your big idea? What would you be putting in the mix? I I haven't done the analysis to say whether or not we should go all in on batteries, all in on hydro, if electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells are the future or if carbon capture and storage is going to be the way of the future. So I think if I could pick one big idea, it would be for bipartisanship with respect to what carbon and energy policy is going to look like, because I think that will pave the way for these enterprising and brilliant ideas that we have already existing in our communities, but that aren't attracting the kind of investment that they need to see reality. Yeah. So coming together to actually do some really long-term planning for the country. Georgie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on your hotspot from Tennant Creek. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been fun. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.